0: At the conference, Why don't we turn to something uh, that is more immediate, the book of Acts. You can see here the title of today's talk. Two weeks ago we talked about the incomplete gospel of Jesus. Last week we talked about the offensive gospel of Jesus. This week I want to talk to you about the precious gospel of Jesus. And we're looking here particularly at Acts chapter 20. But I want to invite you today to come trampoline with me. I don't know if that's actually a real verb, trampoline. What, what, what is it? Is it? Are you a trampoliner? If you jump on the trampoline. I guess the verb is jump, actually, isn't it? Hey, so come jump with me. But rather than trampoline, but I want to invite you to trampoline with me today. That is, we are up to Acts chapter 20, but there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. It just so happens under the providence of God. I'd like to say it was my good planning, but no, not so. Under the province of God, the particular section that we're up to in Acts chapter 20 is a really, really useful chapter, useful section from which to bounce on in order to see all the way to the end of the book of Acts. See, one of the great joys of being on a trampoline is, is you can see further when you bounce. That's what my youngest son says when he bounces on a trampoline. He says, I can see the playground in the park behind our fence. That is... When you bounce, you can see further. We're going to bounce on this particular chapter, and it's a really useful chapter to actually see all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Why is that? Well, what we're looking at in Acts chapter 20, verses 16 through to 38, is Paul's last, the Apostle Paul's last recorded speech as a free person. His last recorded speech as a free person. The rest of the book of Acts is going to be taken up with Paul's, when he gets to Jerusalem, his arrest his multiple trials which extend over numerous years Um, he goes on trial before all sorts of different authorities Jewish and Roman and uh, sometimes you know he's brought out there's sort of a trial he gives a defense and then he's put back in prison for a couple more years before he's dragged out the next time so the account of Paul's defense and his trials actually extends over quite a long period of time starts in Jerusalem goes all the way through to Rome But uh, what you get here is his last speech as a free person and it it is spoken in full knowledge of what is going to come to him. He actually says in it, I know, the Holy Spirit testifies in every place I go, that imprisonment and persecutions await me. So he has some sense, not exactly of what's going to happen, but he has some sense of the character of what's going to happen. So this is a useful speech to be looking at because it sort of does set you up for the whole rest of the book of Acts. It is also Paul's only recorded speech in any detail to Christians. Now, we know that Paul is a great church planter, but also he spent a lot of his time actually building up the believers, going around from church to church that he'd helped establish, encouraging the believers to stick with their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially amidst much persecution. This is the only recorded full speech that we have. Now, why has Luke recorded it? Not just out of historical interest. Why did he pick this particular speech? Well, I think he's picked this particular speech because Paul says some really important things here to Christians and to Christian leaders in particular that weren't just relevant to that particular group of Christian leaders, that are relevant to all Christian leaders and therefore to all churches throughout all time. This is a really significant speech to be looking at. Now, we want to ask the question, of course... What is God going to say to you today through this speech? That is the right and proper question to ask all the time when you're reading God's Word. God wants to speak to you through this Word. What's He going to say to you today? But if you're going to a- answer that question, you actually have to ask and answer a prior question. First of all, you've got to ask and answer this question. What is Paul trying to achieve in this speech? Not just, what does he say? like as you can just read the words, but... What's he trying to achieve by what he says? Only if you can sort that out will you start to be on the right track to work out what is God trying to say to you today through this speech. So I'm going to read through his speech and I want you to be asking yourself this question. What's Paul trying to achieve here? I'm hearing what he's saying. What's he trying to achieve? Give you some options. Maybe he's defending himself because he faced a lot of opposition and we know he's about to be arrested and put on trial. So maybe this is some sort of defence. Maybe he's just trying to encourage the believers just because that's what you do. Maybe he's actually trying to scare the believers with a right sort of fear, sort of a reality check. What's he trying to do in this speech? That's the question I want you to ask. Let me read it to you. It's Acts chapter 20. I'm going to start at verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem if possible by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So notice who the speech is directed to, the elders of the church. doesn't actually take place in Ephesus. He's actually about 30 miles so about 48 k's away from Ephesus. He sends a message that they actually come down to meet him uh, in Miletus as he's on his way to Jerusalem. So let me pick it up, the story then. Uh, what he says, verse 18. He says to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of everyone. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, some will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I, commend, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words that the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. What is Paul trying to achieve through this speech? And what is God trying to communicate to us today? Four things, I think, four answers to that question. First of all, Paul's letting them know that he has completed his commission amongst them. I say particularly amongst them because, well, there's several chapters to go, isn't there? Paul's going to head on to Jerusalem and he's got more work to do there. And we know that the Lord Jesus actually appears next to Paul when he's in Jerusalem one night in Acts chapter 23 verse 11 and the Lord Jesus says just as you testified to me here in Jerusalem so you must also testify to me in Rome so obviously the Lord Jesus has more in store for Paul but he has completed his mission or his commission amongst them he's trying to make that point you get it I think from uh, verses 25 to 27 notice there though in uh, verse 26 he has this very odd phrase and Odd phrases should be a little warning light on your hermeneutical dashboard, right? As you're reading the text, you go, I don't get what that means. It should be setting off a little warning light. He says there, verse 26, Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of everyone. What? Innocent of the blood? What? He hasn't killed anyone? Well, that's sort of interesting. I mean, what does he mean by that? He can't mean he hasn't killed anyone. Now you might, for a moment, think maybe that is what he means because if you'd read about the way Paul had encouraged—in air quotes—other places a bit early in the chapter, he goes to Troas. Now, when he's in Troas, it says he was he was due to leave the next day, and so Paul gathered the believers together and he spoke to them till midnight because he was leaving the next day. This is like Ancon Thursday night on steroids. <laughs> We're all going home tomorrow. We're just going to power on, go all the way to midnight, and he just kept speaking and. Luke records, because he was there, because he uses the first person language, he was obviously an eyewitness, the room's full of lights, and there's this young man, Eutychus, sitting in the window, who falls into a deep sleep, whilst Paul is speaking, and I frankly, I know what that's like, to many of you are asleep, while well, I talk on and on and on and on, and you're all just, I mean, anyway, no, but Eutychus is there, falls into a deep sleep, and tragically, he falls out of the window, they're on the third story, and he dies guy died, listening to Paul speak. They rush down. It's not funny. It's not. Can you imagine? Anyway, they rush down. Paul, Paul lies down and gathers him up and says, it's okay he's not dead. That is, God raises Eutychus back to life again. And you think, well that's amazing. That's fantastic. You think, well, that was a pretty good end to the night. <laughs> you know, lots of talking from Paul and a bit of a mini-resurrection happening there, that was all right. They then head back upstairs, break bread, and Paul speaks on till daybreak. He just keeps on going all the way to daybreak. So, you know, Paul was really into sort of encouraging people, even to the point where they would die. Anyway, um, so is that what he means when he says, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. God's raised you all back to life. No, that's not what he means. What's he talking about? Who has any idea what he's talking about? Now, it's one of those things. If there's a a phrase you don't get, what do you do? You just gloss over that? No, because that's a warning light. If you don't get what he means, then that's a clue to you. You haven't understood the passage. If it makes no sense to you, you don't get what's going on in Paul's mind here. Now, I must admit, for years, I sort of wondered about this first. I just thought, gee, I don't get that. And I'd just skip over it. It wasn't until I actually come to actually sort of have to try to explain to me, go, I better really wrestle with this. I think the key is actually Ezekiel 33. Which point you go, Ah, oh, okay, yeah, does it make sense? <laughs> no? Okay, then turn up Ezekiel thirty three, right? Because I think this Ezekiel thirty three, or maybe Ezekiel chapter three, which is on a similar theme, is possibly what's in Paul's mind. Ezekiel chapter thirty three, I'm looking at the first nine verses. Verse one. Uh, The Lord is speaking to Ezekiel, prophet of Old Testament Israel. The word of the Lord came to me, writes Ezekiel. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land... When he says that, he doesn't mean literally a sword, you know, levitating through the land. He's saying an army, right? It's a metaphor for an army. When I bring the sword against a land... And the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people that if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. And then he applies it. The Lord applies it to Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked people, you will surely die and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. Those wicked people will die for their sins and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the wicked to turn them from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sins though you yourself will be saved if you warn them. I suspect that it's a passage like this, or maybe uh, chapter 3, where the same warning is given to Ezekiel uh, to be a watchman or a sentinel for God's people. I suspect this is the passage that Paul's got in mind. What he's saying is, I'm not, I, am, I am innocent of the blood of everyone. That is, I've completed my commission to be a watchman, to be a sentinel for you, to announce to you the things of God. As he says elsewhere, I have not I did not shrink back, or it might say I had not hesitated, but I like the shrink back language. It says, I have not shrunk back from proclaiming to you everything that would be helpful. Because you can understand why Paul might want to shrink back, right? What has happened in Ephesus, where these elders are from? When he proclaimed the words of God, as you saw last week, the whole city ended up in a riot. The whole city was out of control because Paul had been proclaiming Jesus. They were baying for his blood, They wanted him dead. There's a temptation to shrink back, isn't there? But he says, you know what? I am innocent of the blood of everyone because I have not shrunk back from proclaiming all the things that will be helpful, from proclaiming the counsel of God to you. So I think that's the first thing he's trying to do here in his speech. He's saying, I've completed my commission amongst you. There's more work to do. But amongst you, I've done what God asked me to do. Second thing, I think, that he uh, is saying is that he's left them an example to emulate. He's left them an example to emulate, to copy, to imitate. Did you notice when I read through his speech, how many times Paul said things like, you know how I... right? That's, that language is pointing to his example. There. You know how I he does that three times. Verse 18, verse 20, verse 34. Uh, verse 31 he says, remember how I actually calls them explicitly back to his example. Or verse 35, he says, I showed you. It's all about his example. He set them an example to, to emulate. Now, how would you capture his example? You could point to lots of things. He, he says, I've been a servant of the Lord. Okay, there's an example. I've, He said, I've um, come humble-mindedly. Okay, there's an example. I've come with tears. There's an exa- How are you going to capture? I think you can actually summarise his example, though. What is this example he set for them to emulate? I suggest to you it is this thoroughgoing other person centeredness. That's his example. A thoroughgoing other person centeredness. In particular, who's the other person he's focused on? Who do you reckon? Have a guess, come on. Jesus, says somebody. That's right, actually. He's other person centred in the fact that he's focused on Jesus and Jesus' flock. That's who he's focused on. He's not focused on himself but Jesus. He's not focused on himself he's focused on Jesus' flock. There's a thoroughgoing other person centeredness here in his example. Let me point that out to you. Where do you see that it's actually about Jesus and not about Paul? Well, verse 19 he says I came among you serving the Lord. Not about me in a way, it's not even about you. It's actually about serving the Lord. It's about Jesus. Verse 24, he says, I count my, no- my life as nothing if only I might finish the race or finish the course and the ministry that the Lord Jesus has given to me. It's, it's not about his own life. It's actually all about finishing what Jesus has asked him to do. So his other person said it in the sense of focused on Jesus, but also Jesus' flock. Verse nineteen, he says, "I came amongst you humble-mindedly." I think that's a great word because humble-mindedly tells you that it is being humble is an attitude of your mind. It's an, it's an attitude that you have to adopt. It's the same word, exactly the same word that Paul uses when he writes to the Philippians. He says them that they are to be amongst themselves humble-minded, that is, to value others above themselves. And that that's the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. A humble-mindedness. We actually go, you know what? In God's scheme of things, it doesn't matter how gifted I am. It doesn't matter how non-gifted you are. It doesn't matter how centre I am to the, the church. It doesn't matter how peripheral you are. It doesn't matter whether you know Jesus at all, actually. But in God's way of God's world, you are more worthy, no matter who you are, of my time and attention than I am myself of that time and attention. The way God has set it up is you are more worthy of those things than me. Not because I'm valueless. No, I'm of I'm immense value to God. He, it's his own son who died for me. But it's just that the way God wants us to live is to you value the other person above yourself because that's what God himself did in Christ. So he's come humble-mindedly. He's come with tears. Why would you come with tears? It's because you care passionately that these people would actually get this message. It's about actually being other person centered at that point. It's out of a deep passion for them. He's come with tears. He's come, he says, verse 20, proclaiming whatever is helpful, that is not to me, but to you. He's come, verse 31, ceaselessly, continually, day and night, with tears. Verse 35, he says, it's about giving, not about what I receive. A thoroughgoing other other-person-centeredness, I think, through what he's saying here. Focused on Jesus, not himself. Focused on Jesus' flock, not himself. And why has he set them this example to emulate? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's because there is a, a clear pattern of emulation or imitation in the New Testament. What Paul is doing here is he himself is emulating Jesus, the attitude of Jesus. So Jesus' example is lived out in the Apostle Paul. Paul setting this example to them as the elders so that they might emulate it, that they might live it out. Why are the elders to live out this? Because, well, the elders are be example for the flock. The pattern is clear. Christ to the Apostle, to the church elders, to the church. We're all to follow this example. That's the pattern he's establishing. Lots of places in the New Testament talk about that the church is meant to follow the example of the elders. Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders and imitate their faith. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, Set the believers an example, he says, in speech, in purity, in love, in faith, in conduct. There's a clear pattern in the New Testament. That's how it goes. The church is to emulate their their elders. The elders are to emulate the Apostle Paul who is emulating, imitating the example of Christ. That's how it's meant to go. Which leaves a question for us, right? What's God saying to you through this passage? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Are you going to emulate this? Are you going to live this? Are you actually going to follow this example? Will you be able to say verse 24? Will you be able to say verse 24? I count my life as nothing... If only I might complete the race and finish the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me. There's thoroughgoing other person centeredness. Are you up for that? Now, some of you are leaving uh, and one day, one day all of us, God willing, will graduate. One day all of us will head out into the rest of our lives. And may I say, at the point of graduation, you face particular challenges. Because those first couple of years outside of uni, there is lots of pressure brought to bear on you that all says to you, think about yourself. Think about yourself. You'll get things like, think about your career. You'll hear things like, think about your security. Think about your relationships. Get yourself sorted. Find somebody to settle down with. Think about your comfort, your lifestyle. Think about you. That'll be the pressure that's brought to bear. Because that's what the world's into. And we we go as God's people, but into the world. Do you see how radical this is? Where Paul can say, verse 24, I count my own life as nothing. If only I might finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. Will that be you? Will you emulate this example? This thoroughgoing other person said in this. Because in that way, you will bear the image of Jesus in the world and you will fulfil his calling on your life to be like him. So that's the second thing I think Paul's doing here. He's left them an example to emulate. I'm going to power on with the last two. Thirdly, I think Paul has, Paul is relaying their responsibility. That is, particularly as elders. He's relaying their responsibility as elders, as shepherds of God's flock. You get it there particularly in verses 28 to 31. And he talks about there, he says, after I go, I know, he says, he's certain, There's not in doubt, not possible, he says, I know, after I go, that savage wolves will come among you. And from, a, from among your own number, truth distorters will come. So he warns them of the reality of savage wolves coming from outside and homegrown truth distorters. Now, uh, did anyone here actually grow up on the land you know, with sheep? Two people. Now, in Australia, we don't really have wolves. You know, what's the cl- we get a fox, maybe, or a dingo, but you know, I, have you ever seen a wolf? Wolves are big. Wolves are not like little puppy dogs. They're not even like foxes. They are, they are sizable animals. You wouldn't want to meet a wolf. Can you imagine what a savage wolf does amongst a flock of sheep? A savage wolf. Well, it's carnage, isn't it? And Paul says, I know that after I go, savage wolves will come among you. Well, What are the savage wolves going to do? What, what's it, what's, get, get out of the metaphor. What's the reality he's talking of? He's saying people who are going to lead you away from the Lord Jesus Christ are going to come among you. Who are not going to teach the truth. Who are not going to be leading you to the Lord Jesus in faith and hope and love. They're going to come among you and they are going to devastate gospel. Secondly, he's saying, even maybe more scary, from amongst you. That is, Now, is he saying from amongst you, the church, or is he saying even more scary, amongst you, the elders? From amongst you, sitting in front of me, who I've laboured amongst, who I've I've led to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who I've warned night and day for three years, continually with tears. From among you are going to come truth distorters who are going to lead people away because you want disciples for yourself. Can you hear the angst (laughs) that he's feeling? This is the reality. Elders will arise who want disciples for themselves. What's the answer if this is the reality to be addressed? Well, the answer is, he says there, be alert, verse 31, or verse 28. Keep watch. And and now you might get why he says what he says. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Why do they have to keep watch over themselves? Because it's actually from amongst them that will arise these truth disorders. They have to watch their own life and doctrine closely, as well as care for all the flock. Not just care for the part of the flock who are cool or the part of the flock they like. They have to care for all the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. It's God's flock after all. So, that's what Paul's trying to communicate to them. What's God saying to you? What's God saying to you here? Well, I reckon, I reckon it's this. I reckon for every week, for the rest of your life, every week, for the rest of your life, we together have to pray for our church elders. See, elders bear a significant responsibility shepherding the church of God the, the precious church who God has bought with the blood of his own they bear a weighty responsibility and you see here what their task is to keep watch over themselves over all the flock and so I think it's beholden of us to pray for our leaders pray for our elders that they would stay true to the apostolic faith of the Lord Jesus Christ what's been passed on through the Apostles, what we have for us in Scripture. So I think that's the the application. Though I, I wonder also, I just wonder also, if part of the reason that Luke has recorded this for us is because here is a word to all elders. It's not just a word, is it, to the Ephesian elders. Here is God's word to all church elders. This is their task. And I don't know how you respond when you hear this. You think, man, that's a weighty responsibility. But some of you might go, Yep, I'm up for that. Some of you might. And I hope and pray that some of you might. Not because it's a higher calling, not because it's a more godly thing. No, it's just because God's church needs elders. And um, I hope and pray that some of you, God might raise up for that very task. So if that is you, by the way, there's an extra word here, isn't there? This is what an elder has to do. So know that. Don't ever go lightly into church eldership know that the reality is there's going to be savage wolves and truth distorters arising amongst us. And your job is to keep watch over yourself and over all the flock because God has made you an overseer of his flock, his precious flock. So there may be a word there for you too. Okay, I'm going to move on. Finally, and we'll wrap it up with this. What's Paul trying to say to them? Paul focuses them on the grace of God. It'd be easy to... Think about some of the stuff in what Paul says here and think it's all about Paul and them and the elders and the church And but actually you've missed the main focus. Paul really does focus them in this speech on the grace of God. Now, I, I think that's not just happenstance. Remember how I said before I wondered if Ezekiel 33 was in Paul's mind about the watchman, the sentinel sort of passage? If you go back to Ezekiel 33 and read the next two verses, verses nine, sorry, verses 10 and 11, In verse 10, God's people are saying, we are weighed down by our sin. And in verse 11, God says, I desire not the death of a sinner, but that sinners might turn and live. And then he says, turn, turn and repent that you might be saved. See, it's all about God's grace there, grace to sinners. Is it any wonder then in this speech that over and over again, Paul particularly seems to use the word grace, grace of God. I think that's what's there in his mind. He says things like, verse 24, I've been testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 28, the church that, that God has graciously purchased with his own blood. Verse 32, he commends them to God and the word of his grace. Now, the word of grace, word of God's grace, the gospel of Jesus, is incredibly powerful. And he says it here, he says... The word of his grace, that is the thing, he says, that is able, powerful, to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified, amongst God's people. It's the word of the gospel, this message about Jesus, that is God's power to build you up in your faith. However many the years the Lord gives you before Jesus returns or before your days are over, what is the thing that's going to build you up? It's this word of God's grace. It's not an extra experience. It's not going to a sort of a more interesting church. The thing that is powerful to build you up is the word of God's grace. The gospel of what he has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what can is build you up. So you don't move beyond the gospel. You go deeper into it. You graduate from this university, Yes. You never graduate from the word of his grace. You just mature in it. You know, bizarrely, I remember my student number from being here at Sydney Uni. You know your student number, right? I don't know my wife's phone number. (laughs) That's all right. You can take that up with her when she comes to Club Veg to help me with the talk on marriage, which certainly will be interesting. Anyway, um, but... uh, I, don't, I literally don't know her phone number, it's in my phone, but I know my student number, 8847028. That was my student number here at UC. right? Which if you're smart, you can work out how old I am. Anyway, but much like you n- never forget your student number, even though you've graduated, you do not move beyond the word of his grace. Even if you graduate from here. Even if you leave the EU. Because it is the word of his grace that's powerful to build you up. And that is why I think uh, the book of Acts finishes as strangely as it does. If I'm going to bounce on this passage just for a moment and go, do you know where the book of Acts finishes? If I was writing the book of Acts, I would have a way cool ending. (laughs) The way cool ending is Paul preaching about Jesus to Caesar. Because that's where he's going, right? He gets on trial, he appeals to Caesar, he has to make a defence for his faith before Caesar. That would be a cool ending, wouldn't it? Why does Luke stop short? He stops short with, with Paul under house arrest in Rome, waiting for that moment. He's waiting there for two years, and then just sort of, he's still preaching the gospel to every Jew and Gentile he can, but he's under house arrest. He just says, Paul's doing it without hindrance and with all boldness. What sort of ending is that? It's a brilliant ending. Because it says, this story doesn't have an ending, actually, until Jesus returns. You know, Mark Driscoll has a church planning network that's called Acts 29. I don't know if you've ever gone, Acts 29, I wonder what that says. And you look up and you go, man, there's only 28 chapters, that guy really stuffed up. <laughs> <laughs> they should have looked big time. No, why did he call it Acts 29? Because he's saying, no, the work continues. He's absolutely right. Now, a slight problem. It does sort of suggest that, well, Paul finished in Rome... And it took 2,000 years for us to pick up the ball again and starting now, Acts 29, that would be bad to think that because God's people have been doing it for 2,000 years. But I do want to say now it is us. It is the church today that continues the story of the triumph and progress of this gospel of God's grace into all the world. That is the task that we have together for the next 10, 20, 50, 60 years. Are you up for it? Will you do it? Will you commit to it? Because that is what Jesus calls us to do. So I'm going to pray one sentence prayer and we'll have afternoon two together. Heavenly Father, we commend ourselves to you and to the word of your grace, that great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom is forgiveness and the great blessing of the Holy Spirit that great word of grace that is powerful to build us up and to grant us that inheritance that you have promised to all those who are sanctified through faith in your son. We praise you for these things. We pray that you will bring to completion that which you have started in us for Jesus' sake and for the salvation of this world. Amen. Amen.